Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 6, Episode 33. Last week, I wrapped up my rather long-winded history of the Philistines, which finally allows me to circle back to the book of Deuteronomy. When I left off in that book, so many weeks ago, we were in Chapter 8. As a reminder, this is where Moses told the people they were headed to a land where its stones were iron and they could mine copper in its hills. This led me to cover the Bronze Age, its collapse, the age that followed, the Iron Age, and the people that seemed to exploit it the best, at least in the beginning, the Sea Peoples, who may have been the same as the Philistines. All of this starting about 17 episodes ago. What I thought would be a short diversion quickly grew into a longer expedition, though full of history that is throughout the Old Testament. I'll restart this expedition in chapter 8 and keep pressing forward. And with that, let's get started. After the mentions of iron and copper in 8, there are no new topics. Chapter 9 re-mentions the golden calf, and I covered metal casting in chapter 6, episode 15, just before the episode on the Bronze Age. As chapter 9 progresses, Moses reminds the people of many of the stops they made in their 40 years of wandering. Taborah, Massa, Kibroth Hatava, and Kadesh Barnea. I covered all of these in the chapters and episodes on Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And that's it for chapter 9. No new topics. Chapter 10 recounts God giving Moses the second set of stone tablets. Essentially, a recounting of what happened some 40 years earlier in Exodus. In this chapter, we do get a few new places, starting with Beeroth Benny Jacob. Unfortunately, other than this mention as a stopping place on their journey, there really isn't anything known about it. The Talmud does mention that it was here that the tribe of Levi fought those Israelites who wished to return to Egypt. Tin also brings us Moserah. It's thought to be the same place as Moseroth, found in Numbers 33. Deuteronomy tells us it was here that Aaron died and was buried, with his son Eleazar succeeding him as high priest. Next is Gaguda. When Deuteronomy 10 is compared to Numbers 33, the thinking is that Gaguda is the same place as Hor Hagigad which I covered with the history of the book of Numbers. The next stop, Jabatha, is new. Finally. But still, almost as unknown as the other places. Almost. I can devote a minute or two to it. The name of the place may have been derived from the Hebrew word Jeddah, or perhaps Tub, both of which roughly translate to the English word good, in both a natural and moral sense. But why these words? Deuteronomy does say it was a land of brooks of water. And for people wandering in an inhospitable desert, that's a good, natural thing to find. As for where exactly it was, or is, that's the subject of a bit of speculation. It's possible that it's Yutvata, or Sapka et Tabba, or Beer et Tabba, 
all three of which are either in or near the Araba Desert, south of the Dead Sea, and in the part of the area that has either wadis or salt marshes. There has also been uncovered in the area an early Iron Age fortress, complete with Midianite pottery and copper scraps, possibly scraps from tools. This suggests that water and nearby acacia trees may have provided water and wood for charcoal for the miners at a nearby copper mine. And that's it for Chapter 10. A few new places, along with alternate names for previously mentioned places, but nothing substantive to cover. Chapter 11 mentions the Euphrates River, Lebanon, and the Western Sea. I covered the Euphrates way back in Genesis, so Chapter 2 of the podcast over four years ago. The Western Sea is the Mediterranean, which I've covered in bits and pieces over the years since, but it's just now hitting me that I've never really covered the history of Lebanon, and now is just as good of a time as any for that somewhat deep dive. As you would be correct in suspecting, the history of Lebanon follows that of the Middle East region in general, but there are a few things worth pointing out. About 6 miles, 10 kilometers northwest of Beirut, the capital of the modern country of Lebanon, just below a steep limestone cliff, sits a large area sheltered from the elements by fallen rocks, limestone that has fallen off the cliff face. All throughout this area, very ancient flint tools, of course dating to the Stone Age, have been uncovered. Some found as deep as 77 feet nearly 24 meters below the present ground level. Also found here was the skeleton of an eight-year-old, remarkably preserved, likely due to the dry climate. Other bits and pieces of skeletal remains have been uncovered at the site, all dating to a prehistory period, long before any sort of written history was recorded. Some thought to his date as early as 45,000 years ago and the usual caveat about archaeological dating applies. You can judge for yourself. These finds are among the oldest uncovered anywhere on the planet. Other artifacts have been unearthed at the site, including what are known as Kosser Akil flakes. Think of these as flint cutting tools which resemble a scallop shell. Some of these have holes in their middle edge, believed by some researchers to suggest that they were used as jewelry perhaps pendants. If so, these may be the first jewelry used by people, at least in the region, that's been uncovered thus far. Jewelry from about the same time has been discovered in Kenya, some 2,300 miles, 3,700 kilometers away, almost due south. Lebanon would remain inhabited for the period that followed, with its history paralleling that of the region in general. The Stone Age civilization would lead to a population in the period of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Then, the Israelites would exit for Egypt, returning after the Exodus, nearly half a millennium later. At the same time, in Lebanon, and with the rise of agriculture, small cities, then city-states began to establish there. At this point, in the biblical text, the people living there were referred to under the more general banner of being Canaanites, and many of the cities within the Old Testament, 
along with the outside record, were in the region. Places such as Byblos, Beratus, Sidon, Sarepta, and Tyre. Beratus would slowly become the modern city of Beirut. Many of these were on the coast, and as sea and land trade developed, they would thrive, trading with the Greeks along with the Egyptians and various cultures up the coast in Anatolia. The Greeks would refer to the place as Phoenicia, with the people being Phoenicians. More on that in a minute. Their seafaring culture led to nearly 1,000 years of prosperity. As for the trade, spices from Arabia, like cinnamon and frankincense, would pass through the cities, on their way to Anatolia and Greece. More on that in a second, too. But first, a word about their language. The Canaanites developed the oldest known 24-letter alphabet, an alphabet that actually began as 30 letters and is thought to have been a hybrid of a Proto-Sinaitic and Ugaritic language. The Canaanite alphabet later developed into the Phoenician alphabet and influenced many later languages, including Aramaic and Moabite, but those weren't the most influenced. That honor went to Hebrew and Greek. The Hebrew connection is fairly straightforward, as both are Semitic languages, not so much of a stretch. As for Greek, for the Phoenician alphabet to spread there, travel and trade was required. Herodotus, the 5th century BC Greek historian, actually mentioned this, writing that the Phoenicians, quoting, introduced into Greek upon their arrival a great variety of arts, among the rest of that writing, whereof the Greeks till then had, as I think, been ignorant. So, he credited the Phoenicians with the Greek language, which led to the legendary Greek culture. But Herodotus's thought wasn't that vague, and at some point a legend emerged. The story held that Cadmus, prince of Tyre, brought the alphabet with him to Greece in his search for his abducted sister Europa. Cadmus ultimately settled in Greece and founded the city of Thebes. Overall, the history of ancient Greece accepts the Phoenician origin of the Greek alphabet. According to Herodotus, the Greeks originally shaped their letters exactly like all of the other Phoenicians, but afterwards, in the course of time, they changed by degrees their language, and together with it, the form likewise of their characters. And the ancient Greek historian wasn't quite done. Herodotus mentions the ongoing persistence of touches of the Phoenician alphabet in Greece, more specifically on tripods in Delphi, dating to the 5th century BC. He also makes note of the skill possessed by Phoenician sailors, to the point that they, exceedingly allegedly, were the first people to circumnavigate the African continent. Herodotus recorded that the Egyptian pharaoh Nesho, probably Nesho II, who ruled between 610 and 595 BC, so just before Herodotus recorded it. Anyway, the Greek historian wrote that the Egyptian pharaoh, quoting again, sent to sea a number of ships, with orders to make for the Pillars of Hercules, likely meaning the Strait of Gibraltar, where the Atlantic meets the Mediterranean. 
and returned to Egypt through them and by the Mediterranean. The Phoenicians took their departure from Egypt by way of the Red Sea, and so sailed in the southern ocean. When autumn came, they went ashore, wherever they might have happened to be, having sown a track of land with corn. Pausing for a second. This isn't corn as we know it, that's native to the Americas. Likely some other grain that's been translated to corn, unpausing. The sailors would wait until the corn was ready to harvest, then replenish their stores with it. Having reaped it, they set sail again. And thus it came to pass that two whole years went by, and it was not until the third year that they doubled the pillars of Hercules and made good their voyage home. On their return, they declared, I for my part do not believe them, but perhaps others may, that in sailing around Libya, and in this case, Libya probably means the continent of Africa. They had the sun upon their right hand. In this way was the extent of Libya first discovered. Quote. And quite an accomplishment, if true. So, academics have done what academics do, and parsed every Greek letter of every word recorded by Herodotus. And what they focused on, at least in this case, is when he wrote that they had the sun on their right hand, meaning they were heading north, assuming this is in the first half of the day. If true, the only way for this to work would be if the sailors started in the Red Sea and headed south, meaning at that point in the journey, the morning sun would have been on their left. At some later point, they would have rounded what we know as the Cape of Good Hope, essentially the southernmost point of the African continent, where the Atlantic Ocean meets the Indian Ocean. After rounding the Cape, the Phoenician sailors would have turned north, sailing up the west coast of Africa, with the morning sun on their right. Thousands of miles later, reaching the Strait of Gibraltar and entering the Mediterranean. There's also the interpretation that the sun to their right was an indication that they had sailed into the southern hemisphere. Either way, there's only two routes that leave the Red Sea and enter the Med at Gibraltar. One is around Africa, and the other is an almost complete circumnavigation of the globe. Either way, a massive feat for an ancient sailing crew. If true. Whether true or not, what isn't in dispute is that the Phoenicians were known for their sailing prowess, which led to them establishing several colonies along the shores of the Mediterranean. Colonies as far-flung as Carthage in what is modern Tunisia on the north shore of the African continent, and Cadiz in what is today Spain, both places that likely began as trading outposts and grew to cities that still exist today all from humble Stone Age beginnings in Lebanon. And the trade led it to also being a center of culture, art, various customs, religion, all at a crossroads, and whatever the ocean version of a crossroads is. As for the Phoenician culture, it showed influences from Egypt, Mesopotamia, and Greece, solidifying researchers' belief of the contact between all of those societies to the point that a couple of their rulers, Eshmanezer II and Tabnit, who both ruled in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, 
were entombed in sarcophagi, remarkably similar to those found in ancient Egypt. As their history progressed, they would face the same external pressures as did the Israelites and Philistines, most notably from Assyria and Babylon. With both of these, it's thought the Phoenicians were tributaries to larger, more powerful empires. Of course, neither of these empires were built to last. Though, while the Phoenicians did survive in a semi-independent state as a tributary, the siphoning of resources contributed in no small part to the decline of their power. It also didn't help that the other nations, like Greece, were gaining strength. In Mesopotamia, and in the case of the Babylonians, their tenure was unusually short, followed rather quickly by the ascension of Persia. And the Persians weren't content with the Phoenicians being merely tributaries, instead opting to conquer them outright, an event that occurred in 539 BC, when Persia was being led by Cyrus the Great. They would remain part of Persia when it was led by Darius I, a.k.a. Darius the Great, with the empire also controlling the land formerly held by the twelve tribes of Israel, along with Syria and Cyprus. This is the same Darius who was mentioned in the Old Testament books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Ezra. I'll get to a more thorough recounting of his history at some point, way in the future. While Darius was ruling over the area, he combined the governance of the region under a single authority, known as a satrapy, and required the client states to pay their annual tribute. For the Phoenicians, this amounted to 350 talents. Other client states paid more, with the likes of Egypt and Libya paying double that amount. Though they were larger, so on a per capita basis, not that that's how that amount was determined, but still, on that basis, the Phoenicians paid a higher amount. But given that the former Phoenician Empire was spread out across the Mediterranean realm, not all of their territory was conquered by the Persians. Places such as Carthage would remain independent until the Second Punic War, when it was finally defeated by the Roman Empire, a defeat occurring in the late 3rd century BC. There's much more to that event too, and I'll get to that in a later episode. While Carthage was independent from Persia, much of the Canaanite Phoenician population migrated to the North African city. It's unclear if this was forced by the Persians or if the people were fleeing. What is slightly clearer is that Carthage benefited from the additional population, especially those who were of the seafaring occupations. And things weren't exactly easy on the occupying Persians, as at least one Phoenician city, that of Tyre, continually aligned with Carthage instead of Persia. This became uber-evident when the Persian king Cambyses II, who ruled between 525 and 522 BC, ordered Tyrian forces to sell to and fight Carthage. They flat-out refused. Tyre, like Beirut, was, and is, a port city in the country of Lebanon, currently a mere 13 miles, 21 kilometers, from the Lebanese-Israeli border. While the Persians were in control of the Canaanite parts of the former Phoenician Empire, the Great Sailing Force would be commandeered by Persians in their fights against the Greeks 
with the Phoenicians providing what's estimated to have been more than half of the naval force that sailed to the Greek islands for an invasion. Herodotus opined that the Phoenician parts of this larger force were the best sailors provided. Later, but not much later, when Persia was being led by Xerxes I and in preparation of the second Persian invasion of Greece, the Phoenicians led the effort to build what has become known as the Xerxes Canal in Greece. This invasion ultimately led to the allied Greek city-states defeating the Persians. As part of this defeat, the Greeks beat the Persians at the Battle of Salamis, after which Xerxes took out his vengeance on the Phoenicians, blaming them for the loss and having several of their men beheaded, claiming they slandered other Persian leaders as part of the loss. Ultimately, the Persians and the Phoenicians would head home, with the empire severely weakened from their losses in Greece. About a century later, Phoenicians at Sidon, led by Tenes, rebelled against Persia, but the rebellion was crushed by the forces of Artaxerxes III. Ultimately, Phoenician cities would be ruled by the Persians for about two centuries, until Alexander the Great was making his way through the region. As part of his campaigns against Persia, Alexander attacked and burned Tyre which at the time was the largest and most powerful Phoenician city. He conquered the rest of Lebanon in the couple of years around 332 BC. Of course, Alexander would die shortly after this, and his former singular kingdom would be split among his various generals. In the case of Phoenicia, it was absorbed into the Seleucid Empire, becoming known as Coel Syria. Fast forward a bit, and of course, the Romans would come to rule the region. B.C. turned to A.D., and about the same time, Christianity became known in the region, spreading there initially from Galilee. Within a few centuries, along with Syria and Galilee, the region would become a hub for the religion. In the 4th century, it was incorporated into the Christian Byzantine Empire. And I'll stop the history of Lebanon at that point. Overall, though, it would mimic that of the greater region. Romans, Byzantines, Muslims, Crusaders, Muslims again, Ottomans, then World War I, and the upheaval of the 20th century in the Middle East. Which gets me back to Deuteronomy chapter 11. Lebanon is mentioned in the same verse as the Euphrates River in the Western Sea, both of which have been previously covered. Also mentioned in 11 are Mounts Gerizim and Ebal. Both of these peaks sit on the west bank of the Jordan, with the city of Naples in between. It was on these peaks that the Israelites were instructed by Moses to celebrate after crossing the Jordan, an event that was still a bit in the future when he spoke the words. I did a semi-thorough search and was a little more than surprised that I hadn't covered these peaks before. But there's not enough time remaining in this episode to give either of them a thorough treatment, so I'll save that for next week. There are a handful of other places mentioned, Gilgal, the Arabah, the Jordan, but these have all been covered before. There is one last place in Eleven that I can squeeze into this episode, and that's the Oka Mora. John Wesley, the 18th century English theologian, 
wrote that the Plains of Morah was one of the first places that Abram came to in Canaan. And Moses mentioning it in Deuteronomy was a reminder to the Israelites that they were re-entering the land on nearly the same route as Abraham. It was there, and mentioned in Genesis chapter 12, as where Abraham camped on arriving in Canaan from Haran. At that location, God revealed himself to Abraham with the promise to give Canaan to his descendants, whereupon Abraham responded by building his first altar to the Lord in Canaan. It was located near Shechem. As for the oak tree there, it may also be translated from the source Hebrew as the teacher or diviner's oak. Later, in Genesis 35, Jacob gathered up all the idols of false deities and buried them under an oak tree, presumed to be the same oak that Abraham had visited. Fast forward to Moses' speech, and you begin to see the importance the single tree had in their history. A thinly veiled warning to not pursue those false religions they would find in Canaan. Which provides me with a good stopping point for this week's episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up in chapter 11 with Mount Gerizim and Ebal. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, help others to find the podcast by leaving a positive review on iTunes. You can find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast is three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page so that it's easier to find later. Finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released and you don't miss out. Thanks for listening and have a great week.